This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Saks, revolutionary new underwear for men. Made with comfortable fabrics and their patented ballpark pouch, Saks has raised the bar on comfort and performance. And if you're like me, you've probably been wearing the same kind of underwear for a decade, with no idea that there's a better option out there. Something comfortable, moisture wicking, with basically a velvet case for your family jewels. Switching to Saks is a game changer. Here to back me up on this is Outside's online gear editor, Jacob Schiller, who recently reviewed a pair of Saks for Outside Online. It really is a much better experience. I personally have thrown away all my other underwear. I will not wear anything that doesn't have a pouch anymore. Not only that, but Saks is made to last. So just a few pairs could be another decade's worth of underwear. To try the ballpark pouch for yourself and get 20% off your first purchase, go to saxunderwear.com outside. That's S-A-X-X. From Outside Magazine and PRX, these are Dispatches, stories from our writers in the field. One of the benefits of getting a job making the podcast for a magazine you've been reading your whole life is occasionally you get to rub elbows with some of your favorite writers. And Kevin Fedarko is pretty near the top of my list of favorite writers. His book, The Emerald Mile, is the definitive account of the Grand Canyon speed record and on the shortlist of definitive books about the Grand Canyon as a whole. His magazine work has been excerpted and collected, and all the places that magazine journalists aspire to be excerpted and collected. In fact, he occupies the kind of place in my brain where it's hard to think of him as a living, breathing human person. But then last summer, I was visiting outside headquarters in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and it was after hours and another writer was throwing a party. I went inside the house and around the first corner, and I bumped right into him. To be any closer to Kevin Fedarko, we would have had to have been wearing the same t-shirt. I didn't know he was going to be there. Kevin doesn't live in Santa Fe either. And I had never really thought about what I was going to say to him if I ever met him. So I'm embarrassed to say that I pretended that I didn't know who he was. And I'm guessing that he saw right through me, because Kevin is incredibly perceptive and smart. The point is that the conversation did not go the way I wanted it to go. But then a few days ago, I got to talk with Kevin again. And it was a really remarkable conversation. So we're just going to play it for you, with very little editing. I'd originally called him up to talk about They Call Me Groover Boy, a 2008 piece that's about him leaving his job at Outside to go row boats in the Grand Canyon. And I think that on some level, I knew that in asking about this story, I was asking about Kevin's whole journey and his attempt to answer some of life's existential questions. But I wasn't prepared for him to tell me that he'd actually found some answers. I mean, I think this episode sort of, I mean, just the way that you framed the Groover Boy article, um, you kind of like hint at a kind of a broader story that's happening kind of before the story starts and after the story ends. And I was wondering if we could just start with kind of like, you know, pre-2004 or pre-Grand Canyon, um, who who were you and, and sort of what was your life like? Yeah, Um well, you know, prior to 2004, I suppose my life was a little bit more conventional than what it, what it, what it, I was going to say what it evolved into, but it's probably more what it devolved into. Um, I mean, prior to that, you know, I, I had what sort of resembles a normal life, which is to say that I had an actual job, um, in an office with 
colleagues and I went to work every day at a certain time and came home at a certain time every night. Um, I worked for Outside Magazine in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And um, that was my, that was kind of my um, center of gravity um, for, had been for a number of years, uh, basically ever since I moved west um, from New York City when I quit my job at Time Magazine and bought my first vehicle, uh, packed it up with pretty much everything I owned and, and drove from New York to New Mexico to sort of start, I guess, to sort of like reboot and start my life over again in the American West. And so my introduction to the West was really through the offices and the pages of and the culture of Outside Magazine. Um, and, um, I was an editor and later, um, kind of a pseudo writer for outside. And so I was, you know, covering all different kinds of stories, editing all different kinds of stories, but those stories, um, many of them pertain to, or were connected in some way with landscape. Um, and in particular, the landscape of the West, I mean, the thing is, like, if you work at a newspaper or a magazine, what you tend to do is you um, you are, in effect, basically parachuting into a, a geographic area and a subject, which is to say that, you know, you're entering into something um, physically if you're the reporter and the writer and mentally if you're the editor, um, a place and a subject that you're not really familiar with. You try and bone up on it a little bit, but... Uh, basically, you kind of just enter into this space that you don't know a lot about, and you may spend a few days or at most, you know, like a week or a week and a half gathering a set of impressions about this thing that you don't know very much about. Um, you know, and it can be anything, right? It can be, you know, um, how the nuclear waste industry is disposing of toxic waste in the Utah desert, or it can be how, you know, it can be a story about whether the Boundary Waters wilderness area is going to open itself up to motorized boat traffic. It really doesn't matter. But you don't, you don't know a lot about it when you go in. You know a little bit more about it when you come out. But um, ultimately, you're developing what is, an in, in effect, a relatively superficial and ephemeral relationship with the thing that you're covering. And the more time I spent at it, the more dissatisfied I became with that, which is not to say that there's anything bad about it. And a lot of people do this, and they do it very well. I just wasn't very well suited for it. And what I was experiencing was this need to develop a deeper connection over a longer period of time with one particular place. You know, I just, I felt like, I felt like I wanted to be able to say to myself, if to nobody else, that there was one place out there, there's one corner of the West that I had entered into and committed myself to, and emerged from sort of knowing something about it. And that, the you know, I, I understood that, like, the way that you do that is that you have to actually commit. You need to commit physically by being there, and you need to commit in terms of time. You know, if you really want to understand a piece of landscape, you need to understand, like, how that landscape looks and smells and feels, not just over a couple of days or a week, but you know, over the course of a month and across the arc of a season. And then you have to be able to sort of put together in your mind how the seasons 
fit together like the pieces of a miniature circular puzzle to comprise an entire year. And then, like, if you're really committed to it, you start to see how the years roll through it. And so that's what I was looking for, I think. And that's why, ultimately, I decided to quit my job at Outside and, um, you know, try and make a living as a freelance writer. And that's how I came to stumble upon this place and the world within it that sort of took over my life, which is to say the Grand Canyon. Gotcha. Okay. And, um, and, and so this feeling of like wanting some kind of, of deeper connection with a space, or I guess maybe just even deep knowledge of a specific place, that impulse was with you even before you started or, or before you came across the, um, the boats that, that, sound like in the article were sort of this catalyst. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was, um, I, you know, when I quit my job, I think I was looking for that thing. I was looking for that connection. Um, and I was continuing to do magazine stories as a freelance magazine writer and going off to like what to me were incredibly exotic parts of the world. I mean, I was sent off to, I was sent up to the Ar- Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to do a story on the porcupine caribou herd. I was sent to the Republic of Georgia to do a story on what it's like to ski uh, in the backcountry of the Caucasus Mountains. I was sent to the Horn of Africa to do a story about a drug, a drug called cot and how it's distributed and consumed in the nation of Djibouti. Um, I was sent to Everest Base Camp uh, to do a story on a, uh, a group of of Sherpa, whose job it is to put the uh, climbing route through the Kumbu Icefall each year. They're known as the, the ice doctors. So I was getting sent all over the world, but the problem was that all of these assignments were relatively short-term commitments, and I didn't feel really like I knew any more about Everest Base Camp or Djibouti or the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge or the Republic of Georgia after I came home than I had known before I left. I had a few exotic and colorful details that I was able to weave into an entertaining story. But in terms of like deep, what I think of as deep and real and substantive understanding, no. I was still a voyeur, kind of just walking through and gazing at the, you know, the windows of this this revolving shopping mall of journalism stories. And, uh, and so I, th- I, I, I was looking for a connection to a place and I knew that that connection would need to come through being able to sort of like work and live inside of that place. That yeah. much I knew at the time. Yeah. Okay. Well then tell me about the, uh, the, the sort of the moment when you knew what you wanted to do and where you wanted to, to study. Well, I mean, it was a sort of a gradual process, but there was a moment Right. There was a moment that sort of almost amounted to an epiphany and it arose out of an awareness on my part. I was going off to these places like Everest Base Camp and the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, often working with a photographer. And it occurred to me on one of those assignments that like neither one of us had any knowledge of backcountry emergency uh, medicine and that if anything happened to us on this, these assignments, we would have been in real trouble. And so um it was on the last of those assignments, I think it was ever space camp, that I came home determined to find and enroll myself in a course that would impart the rudiments of backcountry wilderness emergency medicine. What I was after was something 
something that's familiar to people in the field called a woofer, a wilderness mm -hmm. first responder course. And uh, typically these are about 40 hours, takes about a week. And, um, you know, you don't come out as an expert, but you come away being able to sort of handle um, most wilderness emergencies. And, uh, and I stumbled upon this woofer course that was being given by, um, it was being run out of Flagstaff, Flagstaff, Arizona, a place I'd never been. And um, Flagstaff, for people who don't know, is it's sort of the informal capital of the Grand Canyon river running industry. Um, most, but not all, of the, the dozen-odd outfitters that run commercial river trips through the Grand Canyon are based in Flagstaff. And it turned out that one of these outfitters um, had put together a woofer course for their, their younger guides. And what they were going to be doing was actually running this woofer course on the river inside the Grand Canyon. So you would, you know, you would run a certain length of the river every day in your boats, and then you'd get to shore and set up camp, and then you'd sit in a canvas chair and listen to lectures about um, compound fractures and uh, dislocations and oh, wow. um, hape and haste and hyponatremia. And at the end of it, you'd take an exam and either pass or fail. And I thought, wow, that would be just amazing. So I, um, I remember it was early March, and um, I got into my truck, and I had to dr make this drive. It was an all-night drive from, uh, from Santa Fe to Flagstaff, which is about 400 miles. And you, you, drive, you drive west. And um, I was driving along Interstate 40, and this huge snowstorm hit. It was like this late winter snowstorm that was coming from right out of Mexico with a lot of moisture and a lot of snow. And um, I almost didn't make it over the Continental Divide, um, which is really the halfway point. And by the time I got into Flagstaff, Flagstaff was covered in snow, which is kind of weird because it's a desert town, really. Um, mm -hmm. But I pulled up in the parking lot of this, this metal building on the outskirts of town, uh, which was the boathouse for this outfitter uh, that was running the woofer course that I had enrolled in. And um, I remember getting out of the truck and walking up to the front door of this building and kicking the snow off my boots and stepping inside. And I don't know if this is something that resonates with people, but, you know, like there aren't very many moments in my life that I can look back on and identify as fundamental turning points where, you know, the path that my life had taken up to that point was about to experience a profound directional change. But that was about to, that was, that was about to, what was about to happen as I stepped over the threshold and through the doorway of that boathouse because what greeted me as I stepped inside, and I remember... I remember just being completely immobilized and my jaw kind of hit the floor because what I found myself staring at was this huge room um, filled with um, boats, wooden and fiberglass rowboats. And I was inexperienced enough in terms of, you know, the world of whitewater boating that I didn't really know what I was looking at. I didn't understand that I was looking at a particular type of boat known as a whitewater dory and that these boats had been brought from the Pacific Northwest down 
to the world of the Grand Canyon. They'd been modified in certain ways to handle the hydraulics um, and the big water that you find in the Grand Canyon. And that uh, there was a whole subculture of people that, um, that had kind of attached themselves to these boats and that the boats in, in, in so many ways were rested at the very center of the very essence of what the Grand Canyon is. And indeed, in many ways, as I would come later to understand, the boats offer perhaps one of the finest metaphors for understanding the canyon um, because they are, they're incredibly beautiful. Um, they're also incredibly fragile. Um, and the longer you spend inside the canyon with these boats, the more you begin to realize that, that these two elements, the canyon itself as it looks from the bottom, which is to say you know, the way the light plays against the walls of the canyon, the way the surface of the river undulates, um, the texture of the rock, that these elements sort of merge with and, and fuse together with the central and defining elements of these boats, these dories, these whitewater dories, the simplicity of their lines, the organic materials with which they're made, um, if they're wooden, and, and, and the way that they... These, these elements seem to dovetail and fit together so that the longer you spend with these boats in the canyon, with these dories, the more convinced you become that, um, that each is incomplete without the other, that the canyon is somehow incomplete without these dories because they fit so perfectly into its frame, and the dories for sure are incomplete without the canyon because it is the environment for which they were designed and to which they most deeply belong. Okay, wow. so I didn't understand any of that stuff when I walked into the boathouse. All I knew was I was looking at these little rowboats that were brightly painted in different colors. A lot of them had square transoms, and, and they had um, paintings on the back of the transoms from the, the desert environment of the southwest, you know, um, a toad, um, a raven, a frog, uh, an agave plant. And, and I knew that the lines on these boats were the simplest and, 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 and most austere and most beautiful lines that I'd ever seen. The way the curve of the gunnels sort of perfectly matched and mirrored um, the profile of the chine in the bottom of the boats. Um, and the way that all of those lines kind of converged and came together and then swept very boldly into a sharply pointed bow. Um, you know, the manner in which the curves on the boats contrasted in a very beautiful way with the rigid and linear um, profile of the oars, these 9 and 10 and 11-foot oars that were hanging on the walls, from the walls of the boathouse. And so I don't know, there was just something about all this that just blew the top of my head off. And I knew in that moment that, like, even though... It is, I mean, here's the thing, like, it's almost impossible to configure a, a way to make even less money than you make as a freelance magazine writer <laughs> if you specialize in, you know, writing about adventure, but a really good one is to become a river guide. Um, <laughs> and yet, despite that, um, I felt that I, I knew in that moment that I had to find a way of suspending my still very unsuccessful career as a freelance adventure magazine writer uh, for, a, for a period of time each summer, or at least for a summer, so that I could give myself over to and basically follow 
these dories that I was so blown away by in the boathouse down into the world that they belonged in. I mean, in effect, what I wanted to do was find a way of allowing the dories arrayed in front of me uh, on that late winter morning to become sort of like the ambassadors and emissaries who would lead me into and introduce me to this world that I didn't know, which was the world of the Grand Canyon. And yes, I had this feeling at the time that like, like I was saying earlier, I really wanted to become connected to and understand and develop a deep relationship with an understanding of a particular piece of landscape. And it didn't really matter to me what it was. It could have been anywhere in the West, right? Mm. You know, it could have been Yellowstone. It could have been Yosemite. It could have been, um, you know, it could have been some, some godforsaken piece of terrain up in the northwestern corner of Nevada. It didn't matter to me, but it did occur to me in that moment as I was looking at those whitewater dories that, like, the Grand Canyon was a pretty damn good candidate. Uh, and, and it, I mean, it seems like like you were overwhelmed by the design of these boats. Do you think of yourself as someone who is sensitive to beautiful kind of creations in that way, or, or did this take you by surprise? I mean, I guess I I I, I don't I don't know whether I think of myself as someone who's sensitive to beautiful creations or not. I I mean, I suppose I am in some ways, and it's built into me. You know, it's no coincidence that, like, I was drawn to these boats. And, you know, I have a brother, a younger brother. His name is Aaron. He's he's only 11 months younger than me. We're what we call Irish twins. There's a month mm-hmm. each year where we're actually the same age. And, you know, he lives on the coast of Maine, and he is a fine furniture maker. Um, he is a person who works with and uh, works with wood and, and transforms wood into incredibly beautiful works of art that people then use in their homes. And so maybe that's a reflection of the fact that I too have a predilection for, um, to respond to beautiful objects Hmm. and beautiful objects that may in some ways qualify as works of art, but which are also tools, right? Hmm. And, and objects, objects whose beauty is defined in part by their functionality, Hmm. right? Part of what makes dories so beautiful and part of what makes them fit so well into the environment of the Grand Canyon is that they perform exquisitely Mm -hmm. in an environment that is defined by chaos. What they also do is they require an exceptionally high level of boatmanship to be able to, to be able to draw out their full potential and not smash them to pieces um, on, on the rocks that, stud the sides and the middle and every other part one can imagine of the rapids in the Grand Canyon. Mm. Um, But yeah, it's, I mean, I can remember the moment very well and I can remember what it felt like to me at the time, but what I can't really put together in a way that strikes me as satisfyingly coherent is a proper articulation of what it was that those boats were actually saying to me. Hmm. I don't know. I just know that it was a powerful moment and I was deeply drawn to them and I was ready to do just about anything to follow my, to follow them into the Grand Canyon. Wow. And so how did you, what, what, what did the next steps look like? Well, the next step was a fairly simple one, which was just asking the operations manager of the company, which was called Grand Canyon Dories, if I could have a job, 
um, and this all all unfolded after the woofer course, of course. Um, and I, um, so I approached him and I asked, you know, if it might be possible to, or to work for him and work with these boats. And, you know, what he explained to me, he and others, and what I eventually came to sort of understand was that, um, you know, you just don't kind of like jump into the driver's seat of a dory. Mm. Um, right. And I mean, that's, that's what I wanted too, right. I wanted to, when I say I wanted to follow those boats in the Canyon, I also wanted to row one of those boats because it just seemed to me to be the coolest thing you could possibly do to pilot a floating eggshell like that through these seething cauldrons of, of white water. Um, along the 277 mile length of the Grand Canyon. Um, but you know, so the thing is like nobody walks onto the deck of a dory and, and grabs hold of the oars. And the reason for that is that, you know, and this is, this is something that is passionately disputed within the Grand Canyon river community. It's a controversial statement to make, but I'm going to go ahead and make it anyhow. I mean, there are a variety of ways to get down the Canyon on the river. Um, you can row a rubber raft, uh, you can operate a large motorized raft, um, but the hardest way to do it, the one that requires the the, the most refined set of skills, uh, is rowing a dory, and and that really has to do more than anything else with the fact that these are hard hauled boats that are very fragile, and if you crash into or brush up against or flirt with or entertain a random thought about the idea of passing too close to a rock inside of a rapid in the Grand Canyon, your dory will break into more pieces than you can possibly imagine Humpty Dumptying back together again. <laughs> uh, it, the consequences of making a mistake in a dory, it can be kind of apocalyptic. And for that reason, only the best uh, men and women uh, who um, have already proved themselves as river guides um, are allowed to row those boats. Mm. And so, you know, you don't, you don't start at the top, which is where the dories reside. You start at the very bottom. And the bottom involves um, not even rowing clients. Uh, every Grand Canyon commercial river expedition, uh, whether it involves rafts or dories, is comprised of um, you know, a bunch of boats that carry clients, usually up to four clients, and they're rowed by a guide. And then there's this little pod of rafts that follow behind, and that's known as the baggage pool. And it'll give you an idea of where the baggage pool fits into the Grand Canyon hierarchy when I tell you this. Um, the company that I work for was the only company ever to have you know, guided Grand Canyon river trips exclusively in dories. And one of their traditions, which was created by their, their, their founder, a man named Martin Litton, who was a deeply committed and passionate conservationist, um, was that each boat, each dory was bestowed with the name of a natural wonder that had been destroyed by the hand of man. Some of these boats are named after rivers like the Chattahoochee um, or, you know, um, the Columbia that have been shackled uh, by dams. Other boats are named. Uh, they bear the names of um, gorgeous wonders that now lie beneath 
Lake Powell that were once part of this extraordinarily beautiful canyon known as Glen Canyon that was drowned when the Glen Canyon Dam was built. And so they have names like Tickaboo or Dark Canyon or Tapestry Wall. Um, and so the names of these boats are um, haunting and evocative and filled with both, they impart a sense of both beauty and loss. Mm. Um, it's basically, they, they, they hold and wield the power of poetry because of all of that. Um, okay, so those are the dories, right? The baggage boats, the baggage boats are named after barnyard animals. And <laughs> when I worked for Grand Canyon Dories, there were four baggage boats. There was the mule, there was the ox, there was the Clydesdale, and then there was the boat to which I would eventually come to develop the most um, lasting connection, indeed the only connection I ever developed with any boat, uh, which was the jackass. And, and uh, very appropriately, I think, the jackass became kind of my boat. Hmm. And, um, and that's what I rode throughout my tenure as, I would say it was my tenure as a Grand Canyon River Guide, but I never became a river guide at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. I aspired to become one, as did everyone who was a part of the baggage pool, because, you know, that's where the younger guides, that's where the younger trainees and apprentices are, and they all share one thing, which is a dream of moving, you know, clawing your way out of the baggage pool and into the seat of a dory, hmm. or at the very least into the seat of a raft, hmm. uh, and becoming a guide. Um, and, and instead of rowing uh, a boat that's just stuffed full of, you know, chairs and kitchen utensils and sleeping bags and all the equipment and the accoutrements that you need to sustain a group of, you know, 24 or 26 people on a commercial river running trip through the Grand Canyon for two and a half weeks, you'd actually be rowing people. Yeah. Um, and uh, most people manage to make that transition within a season or two or three at the most. But, you know, I, I managed within, I would say, I'd like to say it was within the first summer, but truly it was within the first couple of weeks, maybe the first couple of days. I managed to demonstrate such a, not just such a, a colossal level of incompetency, but such a patently incorrigible level of incompetency, which is to say that the skills that I had were not only bad, but they were uncorrectable. Oh, no. um, I was so bad as an oarsman when it came to not just rowing whitewater, but reading whitewater, that it was just really, really obvious to everybody down there. My boss, the trip leader, the operations manager, the guides, um, the, the, the other uh, apprentices in the baggage pool and even like the commercial cap passengers who didn't know the first thing about rowing whitewater it was obvious to all of us oh and me too that like I had no business uh, literally holding the lives of four clients each of whom had paid thousands of dollars for the privilege of a once in a lifetime trip through the Grand Canyon literally holding the lives of those people in my hands in the palms of my hands in my left and right oarlock, mm. um, and piloting them through the rapids. And so, you know, my experience down there really most and fundamentally was the experience of having a dream sort of flower and blossom um, inside the Grand Canyon Dory's boathouse on a winter morning when I show up in Flagstaff, and then over the course of my first river season realizing that that dream would never arrive that I would fail 
to achieve that dream. But you didn't, uh, it's not like you left the Grand Canyon at that point. It's not, although I almost did. Because the thing is, like I was, to get back to this business of bad oarsmanship, I mean, I was so bad that it was pretty clear to me that if I didn't figure something out, I wasn't going to be invited back for another season. And so I remember going to one of the older guides and pulling him aside at one point and asking for his advice, you know, like, how do I kind of, how do I kind of climb this ladder? And I remember him telling me, you know, that he basically said, look, you know, you're, you're pretty bad as an oarsman. You might get better. You might not. Um, but if you want to stay down here, what you need to do is recognize that to be a guide, to be a wilderness guide, it's not enough just to be good at the thing that seems to define the, uh, the activity on the surface, um, rowing whitewater. He's like, there's a whole bunch of other skills that are as important, if not more important. And if you look around, everybody down here as a guide is a really good oarsman, but they also do at least one and sometimes two or three or four other things really, really well. You know, some of these people have PhDs in geology and they can talk your ear off about how the 26 different layers of rock inside the Grand Canyon get put together and form a pageantry of deep time that explains how the universe mm. uh, uh, came about. Some of these people have an incredibly refined understanding of the botany um, and, and, and plant life of this very complex ecosystem inside the Grand Canyon where you have, um, you have a blending of, um, of ecological layers by virtue of the the uh the vertical relief inside the canyon that 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 moves from uh almost a subalpine environment on the rims to a um desert scrubland and mojave environment all the way at the bottom and that interlaced throughout that is this incredibly complex tapestry of life both plant and animal we have people that can talk about that all day long um, we have people who are like really good short order cooks. Mm. We have people who can handle medical emergencies that go far beyond your qualifications uh, as a wilderness first responder. I don't know what your skill set is, but I know that you need to be able to demonstrate at least one of these things that are considered to be absolutely essential and thereby demonstrate that you are a key and indispensable part of a river crew or you're not going to get asked back. And so what did you uh, focus on? What was your skill? Well, I mean, I took a look around and I realized that like in addition to bad oarsmanship, I didn't have any of these other skills that I just mentioned. All I took note of was the fact that there was this one thing that like most everybody had to participate in, but nobody specialized in. And that thing had to do with... I mean, it was a direct outgrowth of these a complex set of rules set up by the National Park Service, which govern and mandate how human waste is transported through and containerized and disposed of at the end of a Grand Canyon river expedition. It's basically how poop is managed and carried. Uh. And this is the thing that you don't normally spend a lot of time thinking about you know, um, if you're like signing up for a river trip. Um, but, you know, it's a pretty important part of your day. And it, it turns out that like, you know, in a desert environment, 
Um, these rules are in place for very, very good reasons. Um, there are no toilets or outhouses at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. It's a wilderness environment. But if people just go to the bathroom everywhere they want, you know, anywhere, um, the there, you know, the waste will never break down, um, and the place will become incredibly disgusting, incredibly fast. Mm. And in fact, that's what happened back in the 1960s and the 1970s when the river run industry was getting started, and first trying to figure this stuff out and realizing that this was a really important problem that needed to be solved. And so the solution was a system and a boat. Um, there is a, uh, you know, there's a name for the type of toilet that we use in the Grand Canyon. It's basically a uh, an army surplus, a steel army surplus ammunition canister. It's called a rocket box, and a toilet seat is slapped onto the top of that thing. And each night, um, a bathroom is set up in a secluded area of camp where people can go and do their business. Um, and so. There's someone on a river crew who needs to set that bathroom up and um, put it together, select an appropriate location, and then in the morning, you know, break down the toilet and carry that night depo- night's deposits back to the boat upon which all of this waste is, is gathered together and transported downriver because it's just one boat, um, and he or she needs to lash all of that together and move downstream and then do the same thing the very next night. And so there's a boat called the Pooh Boat, uh, which is responsible for this. It's responsible for a lot of other things, but that's kind of one of its defining features. And um, I just realized that this was, the, this was the task that, like, an entire crew would sort of help out on, but nobody really claimed as his or her own for very good reason, Right. It's humiliating, it smells bad, it's dirty, and it is absolutely nowhere on anyone's list of dreams and priorities that they want to aspire to, to row other people's poo through the heart of the most sublime natural wonder on the face of the planet, which is the Grand Canyon. Mm. And so with that insight, I saw my opening. I figured that was the thing that, like, if I could make that my own and if I could figure the system out and take ownership of the system, the poo management system and the boat to which it's attached, and thereby allow the rest of my crew to concentrate on what they were good at, maybe I could become, maybe I'd be considered helpful. <laughs> I mean, I think everyone can can uh, relate to the sort of feeling and yearning that you articulated so well at the beginning of this. Um, and like <laughs> it's just at the same time at the exact same time you are both living this dream and living this nightmare that i think a lot of people a lot of people would consider that being surrounded by poop day and night a kind of nightmare and i, I guess what i want to know is which one sort of won the day each day or or is there how, how did you how did you think about that at the time well, here's the thing. I mean, what's what seems like, right, this sort of like horrible collision between a, a failed dream uh, of, of becoming a dory guide and the endless nightmare of being surrounded by poo. I mean, like many other aspects of life, <laughs> 
It's a little more complicated than that. Okay. <laughs> and it, and, 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 and separating it out that way into this, that kind of black and white dichotomy, um, actually sort of avoids, it sort of sidesteps what the heart of it became for me. And as ridiculous as this is going to sound, it obscures the, the beauty of what actually happened. Mm. Um, Okay, because I mean, here's the thing. So, I I'm embarrassed to say that, like, I I I, I mean, I spent quite a bit of time, at least one season, maybe like two or three, really resenting this, hmm. you know, really really frustrated at the fact that I wasn't um, getting to where I wanted to go, um, and like the jackass too was like I was almost always the last boat in a running order. So like. Not only did I not get to row a dory, but I had to spend every day watching these things in front of me float downstream. Um, and uh, I, I I spent a lot of time sort of dwelling on the injustice of all of this. What I thought of as the sort of cosmic injustice that was being inflicted upon me by the universe by virtue of the fact that, um, you know, I wasn't good enough to be able to do the thing that I wanted to do. And then there was this additional element added on top of it, which is that the thing that I wanted to do was dangling right out there in front of me, you know, a couple of 50 yards downstream each and every day, all day long. Mm. Um, and that just sounds horrible. And it was until something kind of shifted in my mind and I started to realize, <laughs> you know, what I started to realize was that I was being a jackass and the reason I was being a jackass was that I had become so caught up in my frustration over well, my failure to get the thing that I wanted that I had blinded myself to the other thing that was being handed to me by virtue of being denied the goal that I thought I wanted. So what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that I slowly came to realize there are a couple of things here. The first is that I slowly came to realize that um, I may not have had the opportunity to row a dory, but I was being given an opportunity to do the next best thing, which is to follow behind these boats to which I was drawn and spend all day, each and every day, looking at them, thinking about them, mooning over them, um, breaking down in my mind the components of what made them so beautiful and why they performed so well and how they fit so perfectly into the canyon environment. And what I didn't understand at the time was that all of those things, all of those things were important ingredients uh, to an equation that was slowly uh, assembling itself in my mind and that, the, and that a key element was the distance. I was rowing behind these beautiful boats that I wanted to claim as my own and row. And I was being denied the opportunity to do that, but I was being given the chance to think about what made them so unique and so special. And I was also being forced to accept a distance between myself and those boats that's frustrating and intolerable if what you are is a river guide, an aspiring river guide, 
but is absolutely necessary if what you are really are is not a river guide, but a writer. Because mm. here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. I mean, if you, unless you're writing memoir, unless you're a memoirist, which I absolutely am not, you cannot write about and at the same time be the thing that you are writing about. There needs to be, a, there is an appropriate and necessary distance. You must be close to the thing that you want to write about and weave stories around, but you cannot be the thing itself. And so what the canyon and the dories were forcing upon me was a relationship that would make it impossible for me to be a guide, but was absolutely essential for me to actually be able to write about these boats and the world to which they belonged. Mm. That's the first thing. And and the process of me sort of like transitioning away from being a jackass took a long time in that respect. Um, the second thing is that like the 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 act of rowing all this poo downstream became I mean, it just blows my mind to think about it these days, but it became this like essential and maybe even the most important ingredient in how I came to understand the canyon. And, and it was the most important insight that for me unlocked the entire landscape. And what I mean by that is that, um, I mean, here's the thing about the Grand Canyon, right? Like uh, most people, so six million people go to this natural wonder every year and 95% of them do the same thing. They drive up to the edge of it in their car. They get out of their car. They spend about 20 minutes looking into it, um, gazing at it. Maybe they watch the sunset. Maybe they watch the sunrise and then they drive away. Mm -hmm. There's a very small number. There's about 26,000 people that actually get to row the river, run the river at the bottom of the canyon and see the canyon from the reverse perspective. And when you see the canyon from the bottom, one of the things that you begin to realize, and it never happens in the first or the second or the third day, but it can happen sort of after you've been in there for about a week. You start to think about these towering ramparts of rock that are rising up to the left and the right and soaring a vertical mile into the air. And you start to think about all of that rock and what, how that rock was created. You start to think about the the vertical layering of those rocks and the fact that each rock, each layer of rock is older than the layer that sits above it so that the canyon at its rims is hundreds of millions of years younger than the canyon at its bottom and that what all of that rock represents is a vertical concatenation of time that extends so far back into the past in the case of the Grand Canyon, 1.7 billion years that human beings can't even wrap their minds around it. I mean, the closest we can come is for me to point out the fact that like 1.7 billion years, that's about a third the lifespan of the planet and almost one-tenth the age of the universe itself. And when you think about all of that rock and all of that time stacked vertically, eventually you start to think about where human beings fit into it and human civilization and human history and the conclusion that you are forced to draw, which is inevitable, is that we as human beings, as individual human beings, and we as people who have created something called civilization are utterly and completely irrelevant in the context of all of that rock and all of that time. That we do not matter. That we are so small that we barely even register. Hmm. 
And the reason that is important is because it collides up against and is such a contradiction to how we like to think of ourselves. And here I'm talking specifically about us as Americans. Mm. We like to think of ourselves as a nation that creates shock and awe as we move about our business in the world. We like to think of ourselves as a nation that has created something in the form of a democratic government that is exceptional, so exceptional that it transcends the laws of human history. And yet, the crown jewel of our national park system, this mile-deep canyon, this abyss on the northern edge of Arizona, transmits a message and a set of insights that run directly contrary to that. What the canyon has to impart, more important than beauty, more important than space, more important than time, what the canyon has to impart is a sense of perspective that is defined by and rooted in humility. And there are a variety of ways to arrive at humility through the Grand Canyon, but a really effective one is to row down the river surrounded by other people's shit. And so it was the act of rowing other people's poo and setting up the toilet and having myself defined as the captain of the jackass that opened a conceptual doorway in my mind to understanding this landscape and this environment in a way that became fundamentally important for me as I eventually tried to write about it. The doorway of humility through which I walked was the jackass. And I failed to mention, but the toilet system in the Grand Canyon is called the Groover, and most people who work in the Grand Canyon get nicknames, and I, was, I acquired one very early on. I was known as Groover Boy, and that's what they still call me down there. And I've kind of gotten to the point where I'm kind of proud of it. I mean, it's a really humiliating thing to have done, and it's, it, it, as, you, as you helpfully pointed out, it's, 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 it's evidence of my desperation and probably of how lost I was, um, um, you know, as a man in his mid-30s. Um, but it became the thing that kind of like, it became my lodestar. It became magnetic north for me. It was the thing around which I eventually oriented everything else. I mean, I don't know what's better, really, to row one of those boats in the canyon or to be the person that figures out how to tell their story to everyone else. Mm. I mean, if you'd actually offered me the choice, I don't know what I would have picked. I just know that the one that was handed to me feels fulfilling and satisfying in a way that I never could have anticipated when I was standing inside the doorway on the other end of that threshold, inside that boathouse uh, on that March morning of 2004. Yeah. And for me, too, it's, it's gone on, I think, to just sort of reinforce for me the idea that we are being handed gifts all the time that we don't, we don't really appreciate or understand. Sometimes we can only see their value in the rearview mirror. Yeah. But that was the gift that was handed to me by the canyon. It was, <laughs> I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but it was the gift of the jackass. That was the gift that the Grand Canyon handed to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about uh, your sort of journey and finding humility. Um, and I will say, you know, independent of, of however you'd characterize yourself, you were a very uh, 
successful writer even before you started down this path. And I'm curious if if your writing changed following this this kind of um, journey that, that you went through. You know, I think that my writing prior to my uh, experience in the Grand Canyon was characterized by an effort to polish my prose to a reasonably high sheen in terms of the technical mastery of storytelling and yet lacked uh, beneath that a sense of depth and authenticity and humility. Hmm. And um, I, I think that those were qualities that were permitted to begin to find their way into my work only after and as a result of what I experienced in the canyon. Hmm. Rowing the poo boat and thinking about this magisterial landscape and the lessons that the architecture of that place has to impart. I mean, and I say this too as somebody who like, I don't have a super high opinion of my writing right now either. Mm. So, so, you know, I, <laughs> I don't know what to say, I, but I think I can tell you my, my writing. Yeah. My writing, I think did change. And also the other thing is, and this is weird in terms of what my writing is going to have to do in the future, but you know, my writing changed too, because it moved away from me. Um, I mean, the, the book that I wrote about the canyon, The Emerald Mile, it's filled with flaws. There are a lot of things that I'm embarrassed by and wish I had done differently. But, I mean, the two things that I'm most proud of with that book, <laughs> it's going to sound so, so nerdy, but, like, the first thing I'm most proud of is the section that's called The End Notes. It, it's where I've laid out, like, all of my sources and 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 and, and amplified, you know, the, the stuff that the stuff that the part of the iceberg that lies beneath the surface of the ocean that you can't see when you're just looking at the iceberg at what we think of as the iceberg itself. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm proud of that. And the other thing I'm proud of is that with one single exception in the epilogue, uh, I never once used the first person singular pronoun anywhere in that book. The word I only occurs in one place and I couldn't avoid it because I was explaining how I was interviewing one of the three boatmen who set the speed record in the Emerald Mile in the summer of 1983. Mm -hmm. And so I think what the canyon invited me to do and it enabled me to do in, in my writing was to turn away from myself as a subject, to recognize that I'm not that important, and, and, and focus language and thought and expression and emotion and everything else that comes to bear when you're putting together a story on things beyond me. And I just love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's in that, in that way, the, the, the Canyon sort of taught you humility and then taught you pride again in a small way. <laughs> Maybe it did. I mean, or maybe it taught, yeah, that's a great, I've never even considered that. Maybe it taught me humility, and then it taught me that there's a type of pride that can be rooted in humility, and that, that that is something that is perhaps a little more substantive and carries a bit more weight than the shinier type of pride that most of us walk around thinking yeah. about. 
Yeah. I mean, I never understood this when I thought, I was talking earlier about how I wanted a connection with a piece of landscape. I wanted to be able to say that I really, really understood Mm -hmm. it, right? What I now know is that one of the hallmarks of developing a committed relationship with a piece of land, truly committing yourself to a place, is that the more time you spend in it, the deeper you apply yourself to it, the greater your understanding becomes of how little you really know about it. And I just love that paradox. Yeah. Because it's another way of just, it's another way of basically saying what landscape does for all of us is it teaches us humility. That to me is why land is bedrock. Like nothing goes deeper than that, that I'm aware of. And everything else, ideas of religion or cosmology or... Um, civil government these are edifices that we have built upon the bedrock that is land and our relationship with it that's Kevin Federko he's the author of The Emerald Mile which is the story of the fastest trip down the Colorado River And he's currently writing another book on walking the length of the Grand Canyon, which may very well be the slowest trip down the Colorado River. This piece was produced and edited by me and Robbie Carver. Thanks to Jonah Ogles and Marie Sullivan for all their help in Santa Fe. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. Well, thanks. Thank you so much for, uh, again, for the, for the time. And, and, um, you're, you're a rare storyteller. Um, you should, you should actually just jump into podcasts right now and just speak extemporaneously. Well, you know what I should tell you though, one reason this is coming out, it seems I'm not as good as this sounds. Okay. Because I tell this story a lot, Hmm. right? Um, I mean, this is part of a, lecture that I give and it, it, it came out a little bit differently today because you were asking, you were asking deep and original questions. Um, but I'm actually falling back on some soundbite stuff. I don't want you to think that like, you know, when I order at a diner, there's like this kind of like level of eloquence that, okay, that's just not, that's not the case. All right. <laughs>